congregationally the truth of them and the encouragement. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And you can think about, as we just heard, you know, the footprints of Jesus. We're, we're kind of following them in the Gospel of Mark. We're seeing where he did, where he went, what he did, who he dealt with, how he dealt with them, and we've been called to follow him. So Mark chapter 2, and I want to begin at verse 6, and our subject is Jesus and religious opponents. Jesus and religious opponents or opposers. Verse 6 of Mark 2. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. And and this, I mean, you can take what you want from this, but I, I really want to direct this at my kids, my, my children. I just read that if you write stuff down, you're 400 times more likely to remember it. So I've, I've told you you need to be taking notes. So I hope that my kids are. So, you're 400 times more likely to remember it if you write it down. Mark 2, verse 6. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves... He said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up my bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. So I want to look here at Jesus and these religious opposers or opponents. This was not the first time that Christ had faced opposition. We read and studied in Mark chapter 1 how that when He was preaching and teaching in the synagogue that there was the one who was demonically possessed cried out and said, Let us alone, what do we have to do with thee? So this was not the first occasion when Christ had been opposed openly or in the hearts of some. And remember, as we are serving the Lord, as we're living for Him, as we will deal with naysayers, hostile onlookers, as we labor and serve Him and fish for men as well. There's always going to be opposition. There's always been opposition to God, His work, His people, His church. There's been opposition from the very beginning since sin entered the world. Cain opposed Abel. There were those who mocked Noah. There were those who built a tower to Babel. And rejected the way of the Lord. 
time after time after time, we find there was opposition to the Lord and His work. And it's always been what? Overcome by faith. Always. Believing and trusting the Lord. That's how we overcome opposition. And here we see it from some religious people. Opposition is always sad. It's always sad when people oppose that which is better for them, that which is good for them. It's always sad when people oppose the words of Jesus. It's always sad when it comes from kinfolk. These were Jews. They were opposing the king of the Jews. This is the same one who said, I'm going to make a great nation out of Abraham. And he did. And now they're opposing him. Because remember, before Abraham was, I am. That was Christ who said unto Abraham, I am. And so all of this, these were his own kinfolk. We find they were religious. Some were so-called religious experts. Some were so highly revered in their separatism from from. Uh, carnality and fleshly things, yet we'll read that they were the ones who were in opposition to Christ. We've read of others, we've read of people who were saved who were in opposition to Christ. Jesus had to rebuke Peter, say, get behind me, Satan. Simon Peter had gotten in opposition with the Lord. How How about churches of the Lord that have been opposing to him? always sad to say the least it is not necessary it is not spiritual it is not under God's will or leadership to oppose Jesus Christ some folks think they're doing God's work by opposing the person of Jesus you're not And I've always found it interesting that when people are actually not doing the Lord's work, they're not being moved to the Lord and different things, and you know you don't have anything to do with it, and people think, oh well, well you're not you're not right. You know, there's a so-called revival happening in in some church somewhere. I don't even know where it's at exactly, but it's not a revival of Holy Spirit. So, so how do you know that? Because God is not going to use homosexuals and lesbians in worship to lead his people in revival. And that's exactly what's happening there. So don't be dissuaded. Don't think, oh, this is something fantastic. Look at this. Look at that. Go, huh. Maybe find out a little more information before we start, oh, God's really moving there. No, he's not. It's an evil and wicked spirit. No different in a lot of places. And folks will say, oh, you're, you're, you know, you're looking at this and, and you just think you're the only ones. I don't think we're the only ones. But I know that over there is not the Lord. That I know. They're just religious opponents of another feather. I wish it was real spiritual revival. I do. And I hope that we have real spiritual revival. 
I'm not talking about people walking down the aisle, but actually convicted. And you'll see how much revival there is when it finally ends and people's lives all go back to normal. You'll see how little revival there really was. You know, you have special services, and you know, you can call it a revival meeting, say, that's our goal. We'd like God to revive us again. That's our desire. But you know, reviving deals with it's a change, isn't it? It means there's a change in people. I hope God does revive them. Hope people's lifestyles change. Hope folks will repent and believe. But you, you'll not convince me that God is using these things to do it. And it's amazing how so many folks say, well, you're, you're in opposition. No, I'm just going by God's Word. Look in Mark chapter 2 here, verse 6. Who are these opposers or opponents of the Lord Jesus? Well, they were religious people. In Mark 2 verse 6, we find it says, but there were certain of the scribes sitting there. If you'll flip over to Luke chapter 5, we have the account of Luke. In Luke chapter 5, notice if you would verse 17. Luke 5 and verse 17, he gives us a little more information. On to who these were. He says here in Luke 5.17, It came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And you can keep reading of this account and how that they... They went up on the housetop, opened up, let them down through, and he said, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And they they reasoned within themselves. It's the same account. So there's scribes, Pharisees, doctors of the law. Who were these individuals? Well, if you'll turn over, first of all, let's know who these scribes were. Turn over to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. And you know, they had different groups. You know, there were, there were scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, Zealots, Herodians, all the things. Kind of sounds like so-called Christianity today. I mean, there's all kinds of people, aren't there? There's folks, you know, there's... This person, reverend this, doctor this, the very reverend, the most very reverend. Bishop this. Mrs. Bishop that. And they're all in opposition to Christ. You cannot be opposing Jesus and still be on the side of God. Because He is God. In Ezra 7, in verse 6, we find here that the scribes, this was a group of people all the way back in Ezra's day. And, and, and so we read here, Ezra 7, verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, 
which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. So the scribes, they were ones who they wrote. They scribed. And they wrote God's Word. And they kept track of it. They made copies of the law. And they made copies of the Word of God. And they would write and write. And they would write and write. And pretty soon they became so-called experts. And then they became interpreters. Oh, we've written this down so many times. Here's what it means. And they were called doctors of the law. Well, if all you ever did was copy the Bible, you ought to know something about it, you'd think. By the time of Christ, this had become a professional group. In fact, a lot of them were crossed over with the Pharisees. See, you, you could be in more than one group. Kind of like a non-denominationalist today. These here and so-called interpreted the law, taught it to their disciples, were so-called experts in cases where people were accused of breaking the law. These were ones who they dealt a lot with the oral renderings of the law as well. So they'd write it down and they'd say, well, this is what it means. Then they kept track of all the this is what it means. It kind of like, you know, well, you know, a lot of Baptists stay, and I'm not slighting these, but they get all their information out of their commentaries and they get nothing from the Lord. I, I, I have a whole library full of commentaries and I use them as I... I need to as the Lord enables me to use them. I'm not saying anything against commentaries. But you better get your sermons and your thoughts from the Lord and the Holy Spirit. These here, these scribes along with others, but they would be instrumental in seeking to destroy Jesus Christ. You read that in Luke 19 verse 47. Luke 19.47, I'm not going to turn there. The next group we read in the Gospel of Luke was the Pharisees. And these are very highly well known throughout the Scriptures. The most famous, as far as I know, the most famous of all the Pharisees is Saul of Tarsus, whom God saved, and he became the Apostle Paul. Paul himself said, I was a Pharisee. Read it at Philippians 3.15. These Pharisees controlled the synagogues and they exercised control over the people in general. People were afraid of them. People feared them. Now these were the religious of the religious of their day. And, and they were not good people. Amen. We still have Pharisees today. There's Pharisees in Baptist churches. They're more concerned with the outside than they are with the inside. 
They're more concerned with how things look than how they actually are. They're more concerned with how, what people perceive than with what God perceives. The name Pharisee means separated ones. And these were separated. I mean they were separated. You know, they had the Sabbath day, a Sabbath day's journey. That was a distance that you could go and you could travel. And, and, and one day on the Sabbath, it was okay. And all the Pharisees, they wouldn't even come close to it. I mean, these are the touch not, taste not, handle not people. These were devoted to the law, but more so, they were devoted to the writings, interpretations of men. These were the ones that hold up a commentary. Oh, A.W. Pink said this. Oh, John Gill said this. Oh, oh, Spurgeon said this. Well, what God say about it? Look over in Matthew 5. I just want to show this. Matthew 5. Again, this was the Pharisees. <clears throat> they were more concerned with their oral traditions as opposed to what God said. Jesus rebuked them for it. He says, they, they said, well, why do your disciples not do this? And He says, why do you teach for commandments the doctrines of men and make void the teaching of the Word of God? Why do you do that? You know, why are you more concerned about this, that, or the other? Why aren't you concerned about what God's Word says? Some folks get all upset over stuff that not even the Bible says anything about. One fellow, he told us, oh, it's unscriptural to pass a plate. There is no scripture that says how to take up the tithes and offerings other than it's supposed to be done on the first day of the week. That's it. He said, I just don't want people to know how much I give. What? I'll be honest with you, it's because he wouldn't give anything. That's why I didn't want anybody to know. But nobody did know. Matthew 5, verse 21. Notice here, verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. And then verse 22, but I say unto you. So that's the Pharisees. And, and verse 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. Verse 28, But I say unto you. Verse 31, It hath been said. Verse 32, But I say unto you. Verse 33, Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. Verse 34, But I say unto you. Verse 38, Ye have heard that it hath been said. Verse 39, But I say unto you. Verse 43, ye have heard that it hath been said. Verse 44, but I say unto you. And he's the one who said, but I say unto you. He's the ancient of days. He's the one who said it first. 
He's the one who said it first. He's the one that gave it to Moses. He's the one who gave Moses Genesis 1.1 through Deuteronomy 34. And they're trying to tell other people, yeah, well, well, this is what it says, and here's what it means, and Jesus says, no, no, no. This is what it is. If you look in chapter 23 of Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, I'm not going to take the time to read all of this, but you can read this entire chapter and it will give you a really good glimpse of what God thinks about scribes and Pharisees. And I'll just read verse 15. They were missionary. I mean, these Pharisees were missionary. The problem is, and we'll read it here, Jesus said, verse 15, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye can pass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. All they were concerned was converting people to this outward sham of Judaism that they had created. I'd be like you and I, wanting people, alright, well you've got to dress this way, and you've got to go to this church, and you've got to believe this doctrine, but they don't believe on Christ. That's what that would be. Well, they got the right dress, they got the right hair length, they got the right clothes on, they got the right this, they're given, they believe this doctrine, and they're still going to hell. That's what the Pharisees were. God help us from that kind of thinking, behavior, belief system. Secondly, I'd like you to notice where these opponents were. Where they dwelt. Where they lived, if you would. And I'm not talking about Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Jerusalem. That's not what I'm talking about. I'd like you to notice Mark 2 and verse 6. This is where they lived. This is, this is it. I know they were, were writers of the Word of God. They were so-called interpreters. They dealt with oral traditions. But this is where they lived. Mark 2 verse 6. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, now here it is, and reasoning in their hearts. That's where they lived. In their own hearts. They dwelt there. That was, that was where they were. And they could look down their religious noses at everybody because they only dwelt in their hearts. Matthew 9.3 says they, they, they thought within themselves. They never thought outside of themselves. They only thought within themselves. This is where these loved to be. They were not really interested in the things of God. You know the Scripture, no doubt Jeremiah 17 verse 9 The heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. And yet the Bible tells us in verse 6, that's where they did their reasoning, their thinking, their logical thinking. In a place that is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. That sounds like a good place to do your reasoning. 
I don't think so. But that's where they lived. And their corrupt, wicked, stony, depraved hearts. You know, there's some people who still live there today. There's some religious people, there's some preachers, there's some pastors, there's some Baptists. They still are reasoning in that old nature, that old corrupt heart. I, I just want to, for by way of comparison, look over to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And I want to read here verse 1, 2, and 3. Here's a man, Saul of Tarsus. Lord saved him. Now he's the Apostle Paul. He didn't reason in his heart anymore. What is it that we who are saved are supposed to reason with? Thus saith the Lord. And didn't God say, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord? Didn't, isn't that what Paul used when he went to others? Isn't that how we ought to govern ourselves and our own lives and our families is with thus saith the Lord, not with, well, this is what I think. Here's what I think we ought to do. Well, here's what I believe about that. Listen to Acts 17 verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia... They came to Thessalonica where it was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul, as his manner was, went unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He didn't reason out of his own heart anymore, did he? Why? What happened? God saved him. See, sometimes we forget that. See, this book... It's not just a, a book to be used to critically get people or, or criticize them or to draw them to Christ. This is a living book for everyday use. And we ought to reason the things of today, the things of 2023, the things of 2024, if the Lord sees fit for us to get there, the things of 2022, the last three and a half years, all the things that have happened ought to be reasoned out of this book. We ought to consider them in light of the Scriptures. If you're going around today saying, I wonder why this happened. I wonder why this is happening. It's right here in this book. It's right here. God told us. And if you haven't come to the conclusion yet that you need to repent, believe on Christ, you're not to the end of the reasoning. Because that's the end of it. And if you're saved and you haven't come to the end, which is Jesus Christ is sufficient for all things, you haven't come to the end of it. If we're going to reason, it must be as Christ did, and that is out of the Scriptures. These here, these Pharisees, reasoned out of their own hearts and they concluded that Jesus had committed blasphemy. No doubt, 
if they had reasoned out of the Scriptures, they would have came to a different conclusion. Perhaps they would have came by the help of the Holy Spirit, because again, this is a book that needs more than just human reason. It's a spiritual book, and it requires the Spirit of God to help us. And you know how we know that? Because we've reasoned out of the Scriptures that we need the Holy Spirit's help. They would have reasoned that He was the Christ of God. That He was born in Bethlehem, Judea, according to the Scriptures. Born of a virgin. That a man who was doing all of these things was none other than the Christ. The one whom God had long prophesied of. That he was in fact God incarnate of the flesh and peradventure they would have then come to repentance and faith. But see, when all you ever do is reason in your heart, your conclusion is, my righteousness is good. I'm not like that man over there. Oh, I go to church. I give tithes of all that I have. And I help people and this, that, and the other. And you'll go down from there unjustified. Just like another Pharisee did. Let us not make the mistake after having been saved of reasoning within our hearts. We need to reason with Scripture. We need to be able to ascertain as a, a friend of mine in the ministries doing a study on discernment. We need to have biblical discernment about things. Now, thirdly, what was their accusation? We noted the, who the opponents were. We noted where they dwell, where they live. Now, what was their accusation of Christ? Well, the Bible tells us this man blasphemes God. Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? What was it that he he had said that caused him to think this? Verse 5, When Jesus saw their faith, He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning with their hearts, Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? The word blasphemy here, it's speaking impiously of God or laying claim to a divine attribute. Speaking impiously or irreverently of God or laying claim to a divine attribute. And that's what they believe Christ did. He was laying claim to the attribute of God that this person was forgiven. When Christ stated, Thy sins be forgiven thee, and their judgment, He had assigned the divine attribute of forgiving sin to Himself, and they said, Only God can do that. Only God can forgive. Now their premises were correct. Only God can forgive. They used strict logic. Nevertheless, their conclusions were erroneous. 
what they should have concluded was that this is the Son of God. This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is He who God promised would come, who would take away the sin of the world. But because they only reasoned in their hearts, they didn't come to that. What things do you and I miss because we don't reason in scriptures but in our hearts? What things have we missed out on? What, what relief of fears have we missed out on? What, what steps following, in, as, as was sung, what, what steps of following the Lord have we not taken because we reason with our hearts? What missed blessings have there been? Fourthly, Christ Jesus helps them come to the right conclusions. Aren't you glad Christ helps us come to the right conclusions even after we've come to the wrong ones? He's a great Savior. He condescends here and He gives clear evidence of healing that He is divine, that He didn't blaspheme, that He is the God incarnate. I want you to notice here and, and just, just think. Put yourself. Here's Christ preaching. Here He was. He had been teaching. And here they just lowered down this man out of, from the roof. And he, and he just says, he sees their faith. And he says, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And, and we're sitting there. We're in the audience, if you would. And, and we've come to hear Him because we heard He's been healing other people. And He's been preaching things. He cast out a demon. He raised Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. And we come now, and now we're reasoning in our hearts. And then he says, why are you reasoning in your hearts that I blaspheme God? Can, can, have you ever, can you imagine that? The very thing that we're thinking in our heart, and Christ says, why are you thinking this? He reveals their reasonings. This was not a copley intuition. This was not just, well, you know, he saw something about their body language. No, he was he's the divine being. This also evidenced his deity. And you know God still does this today with the preaching and teaching of His Word. The very thing that you stand in need of that maybe you've been pondering in your heart, in your home, in your, in your head while you're driving around. You know, the things that you're concerned about, the things you see in the news, read in the newspaper, read on the news and you come to God's house and God delivers His Word. And it deals with some of the very things you've been dwelling on. Does that not reveal His deity? I don't know what you think about. I can tell you this. I've sat in many a pews and heard the Word of God preached and said, that's for me. That's exactly what I was dealing with. And then there are times when things got preached and said... And Maybe it was on down the road and said, 
Well, that was for me. I didn't even know it was for me. That's why they preached all those messages. I didn't even know I was dealing with this. I didn't even know that that was the reason in my heart. And here God already given me things to deal with it. The Lord knows everything that we think about. Amen. And He knows our reasonings, our logic behind things. And He still says, you need to trust Me. You need to trust Me. You need to follow after Me. Elijah, you go over here to this brook. I'll take care of you. Here comes this bird, this bird that eats things and it's delivering food to him and the water, you know, there in the brook and sustains Elijah. Then the brook dries up and says, okay, I want you to go to a widow. And he gets there and she's got nothing. It's her and her son and she's got just a little bit of meal left and a little bit of oil and a cruise. And he says, all right, well listen, before you make your cakes, and you and your son go lie down to die, he said, why don't you make one for me first? And she did. And her cruise never ran out of oil, and her barrel never ran out of meal. Now, if we reasoned in our heart about these things, That cruise of oil and that barrel of meal only going to go so far. Say, well, I can't go. She's a widow. She's done, she's got a son to take care of. They don't have. They barely got enough to get through the day. How about the children of Israel? God leads them out there, and they get to a place, and they're well, we're thirsty, and all we can find is this water, and it's bitter. And He says. Take that tree over yonder there and throw it here in the, in the water. What's that going to do? Well, it made it sweet. His ways are not ours. So we're not going to logically figure things out, are we? We're not going to sit down and reason within our hearts. We need a higher plane of faith. Faith is another level to logic and reasoning. There are doctors, scientists, you know, we always say, oh, it's not rocket scientists. There are rocket scientists, they don't understand faith. They can't. Faith cannot be explained outside of all things are possible with God. Doctors have seen people healed of diseases that were incurable. And God's people have seen people who shouldn't have been forgiven, forgiven. Given a new life in Jesus Christ, God changed them. I mean literally changed them. From murderers, rapists, adulterers and they became washed 
justified and sanctified. Christ was giving them infallible proof. The infallible proof that they could see was that he said to the palsy, take up thy bed and walk. An impossible thing. This was no circumstantial evidence. It was unopposable, unquestionable proof of his deity. He said, let me ask you. He, he condescends to them with their own reasoning and logic. He says, which one's harder? For me to forgive sin or for me to say to this man, take up your bed and walk. He's palsied. Which one's more difficult? And as usual, they didn't answer him. So he says to the palsy man, take your bed up and walk and go home. And he did. Evidencing that he is God incarnate in the flesh. And that he had authority and power to forgive sins. This was done to evidence that he had the legitimate authority of God and he could heal diseases Above all, the disease of sin. Amen. I'm told that no less than 80 times in the Scriptures does Jesus apply to Himself His ability to forgive sins. And tell people over and over again. We have to tell people over and over again. You need your sins forgiven and you need to come to Christ. Last of all, verse 12, and immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. God was glorified. I know that's kind of been the, almost the last point in this whole first 12 verses, that God was glorified. Well, God was glorified. Doesn't the Bible say this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes? I mean, I'm, we, I sit here, I, I do it, I'm sure you do it. Well, this is, this is, you know, this is the law of physics. This is the rule of this. This is the law of this. If you do A, B's, B's next. And God says, okay, you go ahead and do A. I'll, I'll, I'll make Z happen. We'll skip B through Y. And he'll do it. And we're going, no, you've got to do A, then B, then C, then all this stuff before you ever get there. And God says, no, trust me. I, have, I, I can skip steps. See, he's not subject to the laws of nature, is he? Amen. Laws of nature say there's no coins in fish's mouths. The laws of nature say you cannot take these many fish and these many loaves and feed four or five thousand people and collect more fish and more loaves than what you started with. But God does it. The laws of nature say that this church isn't able to do the work of God. But we are. God says we are. All of these things, we have to understand, 
this is what I want, or I want, I hope it's what the Lord wants, and I hope it's just one of the things we take away from is we've got to get out of our own hearts and our own heads mm-hmm. and trust the Lord that He is able to do exactly as He said He would. Have you ever found God not to do what He said He would? I've never found He didn't do it. He might not have done what I thought He should have, when I thought He should have, how I thought He should have, but I've never found Him to not do what He said He would. Not once. If you're here and you're lost and you come to Christ, He will save you. Amen. He said He would. He said, any man come to me, I will in no eyes cast him out. You will not find salvation outside of Jesus Christ. It doesn't exist. Amen. He told His church, I'll be with you until the end of the age. He didn't say, and I want, I want to say this, He didn't say you're always going to have this, you're always going to have that, you're always going to have these things, but He did say that we would always have Him. Till the end of the age. He's told his individual people, he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. There's some things that have left you, there's some things that have forsaken you, there's some changes that are happening. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. He is God. He keeps his word. If he says it, it's so. He says, thy sins are forgiven thee, it's so. And he evidences it here. And I pray that God would help us that our faith would be as big as God. That we wouldn't have a small faith. But in this situation, that situation, we would trust him. Follow hard after Him. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer.